0: This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man.
1: (laughs) Boy. Hey, let's talk about you. The ID10T community events at ID10T.com. Like Russ Stevens, a.k.a. Cool Movies Darth, who has started a podcast called 90 for Chill. Uh, which Russ says is dedicated to movies with a runtime between 74 and 99 minutes, the time frame that I feel is ideal. Russ, I could not agree with you more. That is a fantastic idea. Uh, Russ goes on to say, There are times you need a cinematic fix but don't have time for the latest Scorsese masterpiece or offering from a comic book universe. There's also times when you know you need a conclusion to prevent a binge costing you a whole night. My um, guest and I try to follow these guidelines as we chat up features that are definitely worth your time and are beyond easy to make time for. 90 for Chill, the podcast, can be found on all major podcast platforms at 94chill.com. And that's spelling out 90, uh, N-I-N-E-T-Y, 4-F-O-R, chill. Um, so there you go. Thank you so much for sharing, Russ. A uh, really great idea for a podcast. Events at ID10T.com for everyone
0: else. Previously on 94chill, the podcast.
1: He's a rocker Doctor Don't tug on that, you never know what it might be attached to you know? Inventor Activate oscillator He's, He's on the sound barrier Philosopher No matter where you go There you are And the only hero Buckaroo Buckaroo, Buckaroo. Curse are you bonsai Who can save us all Evil You're a from the 8th dimension him. Launch Thermal Pod Buckaroo Bonsai is pure nutty fun. Fuck you forgot your thruster.
2: Why are you all to him for what?
1: The cult sci-fi classic. Run, run! In a dimension, all its own. Real-life Martians landing in New Jersey. holy,
0: We will hire a portable beam weapon. Vaporize the whole
1: damn planet. If we blow this today, yeah, There ain't no tomorrow. Left, I said left. This is left. I mean, my left. More left. Go oh, your
2: right. Buckaroo president's calling about, is everything okay with the alien space club and planet 10, or should we just go
1: ahead and destroy Russia? Tell so him yes on one and no on two. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. Which was yes, to destroy Russia or uh, number two? Little Hans says it's time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. <laughs>
0: That's just weird now thinking about Oklahoma being Boomer sooner. Boomer Siri has said we are recording and this is 94 Chill the podcast and once again the brightest or the yeah I guess you'd say the brightest mind in central Illinois cinema is back with us the poetic critic and but on this podcast we probably know her best as Jurassic Jeff Jezebel <laughs> And we are addressing another gold bloom gold mine. With uh, the adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai across the eighth dimension from 1984. So as I say, uh, this movie's runtime officially, I think, is 1.42. But, you know, four minutes of it's the credit. And these guys basically doing a curtain call. Right. So, you know. I don't know. Was that a little too goofy for you?
3: No, I like the uh, curtain call.
0: Okay, I mean, like I was watching it a little more carefully and it's like, no, 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 Clancy Brown died. (laughs) Ah, It's like the director doesn't really like these guys know they're doing a movie strictly for nerds. Which I think is a fair statement. Which explains the lack of box office or sequels.
3: Well, as I was saying before we started the recording, there's some pretty complicated reasons why we didn't get more Buckaroo Bonsai material than we might have otherwise.
0: Well, yeah, as I uh, started the Blu-ray up there running my peripheral, it showed the MGM Lion. This is a Shout Factory steelbook release um, for myself. Um, And uh, you brought up that it was originally distributed by 20th Century Fox making jeff goldblum a disney prince
3: i don't know
0: <laughs> okay so obviously you know this is a movie that uh, it, it's kind of weird because you'd say like oh why we don't have more buckaroo bonsai material it's like you know we kind of need it some would say you kind of need the buffaroo, buckaroo bonsai material to begin with Because this is a movie that really just throws you into an established universe.
3: Well, the way you explain it to people now is, and I've heard it described this way elsewhere, there's at least one good video essay on the subject, is that what if you were watching Avengers Endgame, but you never saw any of the other Marvel movies?
0: Yeah, that's a (laughs) simple way of describing it. But, I mean, an easy way to describe it. But as I say, it's like, You're jumping into something you're seeing on Showtime's HBO on cable back in the day, like you're expecting to know the rest of it.
3: Yeah. Yeah. So. uh, It is that you've been dropped in the middle of what's supposed to be a much longer ongoing narrative.
0: Oh, well, I mean, there's plenty of hints with the comic books (laughs) images being. uh,
3: The screenwriter's novelization goes even further with this. Uh Oh, Yes, uh, Ru McWane talked about it when they were talking about the movie on 80s all over. But the the novelization has extensive footnotes referring to the other novels in the series. The idea being that this is that the starting point was a series of novels, okay, pulp fiction vein,
2: oh.
0: of
3: like the executioner, Doc Savage, the man of bronze,
0: okay, so like. <laughs> I guess, again, bringing a Marvel parallel, so Deadpool before Deadpool.
3: Yeah, pretty much.
0: Because Deadpool was 91 and such. So,
3: Well, a little later than that when they really got they figured out how to make Deadpool work as a character.
0: Right, as the uh, anti-hero opposed to just uh, another mutant. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
3: But, uh, no, there's Uh, buckaroo bonsai does have the unique conceit that it just throws you into the the good stuff you might say Mm. i mean one of the biggest problems the comic book movie industrial complex has seen is that almost everybody starts with the origin story movie and after a while that gets boring
0: oh well and no there's plenty of uh examples of like uh, beloved movies without the origin story, say uh Punisher wrote war zone It has a lot of supporters, and well,
3: don't know any of them myself,
0: well, oh uh, how did this get made? We're big supporters of it, and
3: not talk about a movie that doesn't really do the origin story. I was thinking more like batman eighty nine
0: well, <laughs> you doesn't... say. But, say that, but every time there's a new Batman with the exception of Clooney, they kind of uh in case you missed it,
3: <laughs> yes, that's become a running gag that every iteration of Batman's gonna have to depict the backstory at some point.
0: I haven't seen Batman have- uh the Batman, so right
3: well that that I think that is an exception, okay yeah that they just start that about I think about two years into Batman's career Hmm the lego batman movie just briefly acknowledges that batman doesn't have parents right and, but actually depicting it has become a huge running gag in yes. this with people is that they can't just mention what the backstory is they have to show it
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yep so so um uh... Do we know how Buckery's uh parents passed that uh, he's the son parents of sequence
3: mm. that I think appears on your DVD uh, and it can be watched as an extended cut with Jamie Lee Curtis as the mom.
0: Whoa. That's...
3: That brings this up.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So that's um I mean it it so as uh, as I as I was talking to uh, my uh, friend of the show Tim Bates at work, hey, just rewatched that and he's like, yeah, that is something. Um basically he was very much on the hey, it's got gold bloom so it's definitely good.
3: So I showed my uh, boyfriend David last Halloween we were watching movies together one day and he he had been interested in this one after he'd seen the in Search of Tomorrow documentary about eighty sci-fi because he'd never heard yeah. of it until then. So once he saw it, though, he was totally on board for it. He said he was going to have to watch it again, but he got well, on board on it from the start.
0: Well, I mean, the eighties were a weird time for cinema, at least in the Stevens household, because mom was big on this one.
3: Yes, yeah, I mean. so yeah, mom loved this one.
0: Yeah, which I mean, yeah, she'll she'll watch MCU movies, but yeah gets get yeah there's a i mean aside from looking for like her big thing is looking for older actors she likes and whatever yeah, we're doing like, now right so i mean i can't really say that much with this i mean this is still pre the john lithgow
3: yeah a lot of these actors were careers were just taking off at the time this movie was released. A lot of them were coming up from character roles or like Christopher Lloyd they were really coming more out of TV than movies.
0: Oh, Christopher Lloyd is priceless in this one. I think this is uh yeah. if it wasn't for uh John Booty big John, John Big Booty.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh
0: I'm sorry. Big Booty. Um yeah, I don't know where uh where you get a lot of the villain roles. Well, I guess he did he just come? Was this after uh, Star Trek Three? Was released
3: the month before this film, or? Oh. Like,
0: or. So I'm just saying that's when he's gotten into the uh, real villainous to- stuff.
3: Well, I remember in the but talking about coming out of TV, I remember there's a gag in the Mad parody of Star Trek Three when, after they establish, the uh, Klingons' plot. Uh, the villain sits next Okay, take five, and a giant off duty sign lights up on the Klingon ship.
0: <laughs> right. Uh
3: in a previous life, he used to work as a cabbie in New York City.
0: <laughs> so Alright, just gotta get my shot of Malort in.
3: Okay.
0: I don't know what other podcast is promoting that stuff, but I mean I could at least use I mean it, it was it was a big joke at the uh what do you know trivia um which is Chicago based uh ch- tournament of champions like you had the Malort cohorts and such So I
3: remember Yeah
0: And of course I started drinking this stuff when I was wrestling in Berwyn Sorry I figured I could get uh, Sven Guly out of here there
3: well, I don't know if your target audience knows much from stuff like Spengoolies.
0: So. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't really know what the target audience is. Honestly, when all the promotion is usually wrestling related, like, "Hey, remember me getting shoved into a women's bathroom in Berwyn by Austin Aries?" I'm doing stuff still. So. Um. So, I mean, let's so the movie basically starts with uh, Peter Weller as the buckaroo bonsai neuroscientist neurosurgeon and uh, just a guy trying to be the best that he can be uh, leading his uh, band, the Hong Kong Cavaliers Cavaliers. Yep. And, uh, you know, pretty cool guy looking to recruit anybody into it, which is. Kind of ridiculous when you see the lineup they have to begin with. I mean, never mind. He can play the horn and guitar, so, and piano. And, uh, you know, his next big attempt was to follow the works of his mentor. That would be Professor Hiketa, and who was uh, partnered with doctor oh, i
3: think i can sum this up a little more
0: okay succinctly.
3: um but as the movie begins buckaroo bonsai is working on a jet car project involving an oscillation over thruster which looks that... a lot
0: like the uh thrust capacitor in some images just that
3: yeah i don't know if that was intentional or not on part of robert zemeckis and company but it what which was a project that his mentor had been working on back in the 1930s with one Dr. Emilio Lizardo.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: That jet that car attempt, well, it, it didn't go so well. Yeah,
0: you kind of need jets <laughs> to begin with. <laughs>
3: That's true. But it it left Lizardo seemingly insane, although it's actually because he's, his body is now playing the host to the leader of a group of banished aliens from Planet 10. The Red
0: Lectoid, right?
3: Yeah, Red Lectroids, who were banished many years ago to Earth. And in fact, their arrival is what the War of the Worlds broadcast of 1938 was actually trying to warn people about before the aliens erased Orson Welles' memory. (sighs)
0: which is essentially the first time jeff goldblum ever did the um coincidence catch a cold <laughs> <laughs> i mean like yeah, oh. that's
3: one of his first big exposition dumps in a movie yes, yes
0: yeah
3: anyway Um uh, buckaroo bonsai successfully manages to not only break the sound barrier but briefly travel into the eighth dimension where the other red electroids are as yet imprisoned most of them anyway. Mm-hmm. When Emilio Lazardo, who has been institutionalized in an asylum and a very low rent one at that, yes. finds out about it, he starts making plans not only to escape but to convene with the other red the other red lectroids to gain control of the overthrusters so they can free their the captives from the other dimension and return to their home world
0: and i only yeah. brought up the color of the red lectroids because they are the pe- Yes, yeah, the... so
3: there are two different species of lectroids the others are black lectroids who ha- are quite aware of what's going on down on Earth and eventually task Buckroo and his colleagues to either stop the red electroids from escaping, and if they don't, they will have to. The red, the black electroids will instigate World War III by causing a nuclear, by triggering a nuclear exchange between the US and the USSR. So and- they only have about 24 hours to figure this out how they can stop them.
0: And I only bring up the colors again because I didn't really catch on to the race concerns until my most recent rewatch. Yes, since all the uh, so uh, yeah, without, red, lectro- with
3: the- <laughs> red electroids and black electroids can assume human f- what appears to be human form to human eyes. Otherwise, there is what there what my my boyfriend called discount klingons basically
0: right but I, what i'm just saying is like our I'm black lectroids that. okay
3: black lectroids appear to us as basically black jamaican people red lectroids appear as white redheads
0: basically oh, i did not catch on to the ginger bit all right
3: well, no, they're all pretty much redheads he- yep. aren't they
0: <laughs> well they're definitely soulless <laughs> So, all right. So, yeah. So, of course, in the meantime, you know, Buckaroo's got his own uh, tour tour dates to hit with the Cavaliers. And he comes across a uh, Penny.
3: Penny who, Pretty, who appears to be um, the spinning image of his late wife.
0: Yes, Peggy. Yeah. So, yeah. So, definitely several volumes. So as i say you you have to accept that you're just getting the good stuff
3: uh-huh.
0: which uh which is definitely um yeah so i can see why people are people who aren't really familiar with uh comic books and novels or at that time i mean even watching you know serials on tv would kind of feel a little off like um Yeah, what the? What have they been dropped into? So, and this is a movie though that I think is still very '80s in a sense.
3: No, it's a completely '80s version of pulp aesthetic. This is now just a few years into MTV. There's a definite new wave riff in the the Buckaroo and his band's aesthetic. Yes. Well, uh, the backing band that appears in the club scene is actually Billy Vera and the Beaters.
0: Ah, oh, right. The
3: actual, which was a group at the time that had a few hits, like uh, I Can Take Care of Myself and songs like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: No, there, it's definitely being more, not trying to be uh, completely ground up piece of world building the way a lot of the sci-fi films of this period were trying to be after Star Wars.
0: Okay, yeah, I could definitely see that. Um with so I mean that kind of preaches this is a better version of I, the Ice Pirates.
3: Right, another another movie that came out that same summer. Oh. 1984 was a really big push for sci-fi movies. I mean, and maybe- most people think of 82 as
0: right the, e- E-T, prime, the E.T. the thing uh, Blade Runner 80s but
3: 1984 is almost as thick on the ground the main difference is by that point they were getting more willing to become more comedic takes on these ideas
0: well right I mean and when you say this is summer stuff it's, it's basically saying and eh, this got eaten up by Ghostbusters
3: yeah, and Gremlins also mm. came out at the time,
0: which again still kind of fits that aesthetic in a sense,
3: yeah.
0: So, right, so trying to th- remember where in New Jersey they're playing. Oh, I think maybe Brunswick, or I, or that's where New Brunswick is where uh Jeff Goldblum's uh New Jersey is from,
3: yeah,
0: which uh. I don't know. Too much. Too many or too few scenes of him with the chaps.
3: No, I absolutely don't know where they got the idea <laughs> that character would have the cowboy motif. But <laughs> that winds up being one of the funniest things in the movie.
0: Yes. I mean, and, uh, you know, other members of the, I mean, Clancy Brown is Rawhide. Right. Uh, Lewis Smith is Perfect Tommy, which, yeah. um, which is fun, especially the scene where they're getting uh, Penny out of prison oh. after after out of jail after her confused suicide attempt slash assassination attempt. <laughs> uh, Ellen Barkin is the um, actress who plays uh, Pretty. So if you if you need something better than uh, Mad Dog Time <laughs> uh, with Ellen uh, Barkin and Jeff Goldblum, this would be the pick. Um, but, but I mean, I just like the bit. Why, why, why is it my rat? Why do I? Why did you need my jacket? Because you're perfect.
3: <laughs> Got a point there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting looking at 80s aesthetics. You get the films that were trying to do the world building from the ground up. Then you get the ones that were clearly set in this world. Like right. the, Spielberg was. And his uh, ilk were very good at this, mm-hmm. and many of the ones that are aren't doing ground up world building, but clearly aren't quite this, quite the world we know. And I think that's where he'd put something like this. Okay, everything feels a little off.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's a little, a little too much fun, or a little too much, little too knowledgeable of what we're actually dealing with, especially in the Reagan times.
3: Yeah, that's one way of putting it where these kind of things clearly happen in this world as a matter of course. We're
0: mm-hmm.
1: being like, well.
0: well, you know, we talk about the red lectoys, but there's a lot of Italians as uh red lectoys. Uh Vincent Schiavelli, Dan Hidea as uh John O'Connor and uh John Gomez. All right. Um you know, the seconds to Lord John Warfin, if mm. you get where we're going with with the names,
3: right? The the running gag with the lect, another running gag with both species of lectroid is that all their Earth aliases are John and some kind of a last name,
0: but mm-hmm.
3: if they're women, well, maybe mm-hmm. we pay attention. They they get, eventually get to ones like John Smallberry. Smallberries,
0: berries,
3: yes. John, they're, John, many Johns, (laughs) but I'm talking about 80s Mm sci-fi and how how it evolves over the course of the decade. uh, 84 could be the year where we saw the most comedic variations on concepts.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I
3: when you get to 85. That's the year when you start seeing the obvious Spielberg influence kick in. Yes, movies like *Cocoon* and *Young Sherlock Holmes*.
0: Well, and that was a uh, Spielberg produced, correct?
3: Yeah, the more Spielberg produced, so there it was obvious they were going to be going after that instead. *Back to the Future* also qualifies.
0: Yes, uh, the number uh, one uh, Spielberg yeah. produced movie. Oh. oh, sorry, that
3: was ScreenCraft's choice
0: yeah and i mean it
3: finally, got, it finally got drafted
0: yes that was a big deal and a lot of heat on ryan marker
3: yeah uh, for those who did not follow the screen drafts podcast yes. uh, future was a movie eligible for many pr- to be drafted in many previous topics and time travel
0: time- and july 4th
3: <laughs> yeah july 4th releases but only recently was it finally on drafted into one of the lists
0: so. yes it, it it gets crazy with the Disaster Girls uh, podcast dedicated to um, disaster movies and yeah. their influence on the top 10 is darn near scary so <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah so but uh, in 1985
3: you see the obvious Spielberg influence everywhere whether he has a hand in the production or not I and mean, that's Would also you... your Joe Dante's Explorers
0: Mm-hmm. which um he did very well in the producers draft produced by draft as well uh and i was actually thinking hey do you got any uh spielbergian vibes on the santa claus movie
3: uh santa claus the movie
0: hmm.
3: N- no um uh, okay. i would no santa claus the movie is uh really a different kind of filmmaking altogether it does you do it does kind of have that feel of the Euro producer trend oh, okay. of the eighties. Uh for those who are not familiar with the 1985 Santa Claus, the movie, this was from the producers of the Christopher Reeve Superman films, among mm. a few other productions, but that's what they would be best known for to I think your listening audience. Mm. And as a kind of a Euro mega production, more like Kind of like, uh, well, what Dino De Laurentiis was doing with yes. stuff like Gordon. Mm. It was their attempt to do a major spectacle based around the Santa Claus legend.
0: Well, it's a, it's a fun John Lithgow performance. Let's... <laughs>
3: Yeah, but there's not really a Spielberg influence on that.
0: Well, and I bring that up when you you also think of Roland Emmerich and what he was doing around that time. Uh, Yeah, that's
3: more... more, Yeah, that's a very different kettle of fish. No.
0: Stinky uh, sardines there.
3: (laughs) But uh, Santa Claus Claus the movie uh, doesn't have a Spielberg influence. Although it isn't that far and i'm sure i'm gonna offend some fans by saying it but it's a pretty clear precursor to what happened with
0: hook (laughs) oh don't worry about that uh not a lot of love for hook honestly when we look at it uh with um clear eyes Uh, i mean mean, it was just a bunch of millennial kids liking rufio
3: Yes, there is a very strong Millennial fan base for this movie and you don't necessarily want to offend that
0: crowd. Oh, bollocks to them, all right? Like, not everything Robin Williams did was gold. So, just because Mrs. Doubtfire was fun, which you probably didn't get in 1993? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people were just looking for the genie to do goofy stuff again. My opinion. So um that was fun something fun they were talking about. Uh, with another draft. I don't wanna draft pick. I didn't want to uh spoil it too much. But uh you know, uh, uh a lot of people don't know. Narr- a lot of kids did not know Bob Hopkins was English.
3: Uh not not until we saw the making of the material now.
0: Yes. <laughs> Like, oh, that guy's—that's me—is just doing a great accent. <laughs> Kids see Brazil, <laughs> so, so, I mean, I don't know. It's really, I guess, I guess I'd say, is this a movie a little too predictable? That uh, I, again, being basically the continuation of a series. Uh, that Buckaroo wasn't really going to be in any harm in this feature.
3: Uh, Yeah, it is that kind of a story, I suppose. I mean, it's the story where you know the good guys are going to win going in.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. So,
3: No, it's not a movie that's about emotional stakes or torque in any way.
0: Right, and... I guess with that said, is that something that, um, I'm, you know, a lot of people. I mean, I guess modern audiences definitely seem to uh, just have a vibe that they need those stakes.
3: I'm not quite sure where you're going at. In the well, name, every move, every comic book movie or franchise-related picture practically guarantees that no character will be dead for long if they die at all. It's hard to see what emotional stakes those have.
0: Well, I'm just saying, but um, look, if we didn't kill Quicksilver in the second Avengers movie, then, um, you know, nobody would be prepared for, uh, you know, the Black Widow or, you know, Gamora in the sequels i'd guess
3: well there's actually a word for that kind of thing in the world of comic books for something like quicksilver is called c-list fodder well there's nobody he's going to care about anyway they can just toss to the wolves as needed
0: yeah it's true so you're saying rawhide was just sea list fodder
3: oh no i'm not <laughs> saying <I'm>... he's <laughs> not yeah, cool and stuff
0: So i at the press conference at the peripheral.
3: Characters who have to be thrown to the wolves in the end to suggest that there is a danger the characters are facing.
0: Mm.
3: It's like in the James Bond movies where usually the first gal he hooks up with ends up dead.
0: Yeah, no. Screw the the herpes he's spreading. (laughs) You just don't want to be the first one in the movie. (laughs) Uh, So... Uh, so we're at the press conference in my peripheral, and you get that vibe uh, that kind of just pops up out of there about uh, Penny just knowing everything that's going on.
3: Right. Well, there's there's an explanation for this in the novelization, but I don't want to go into spoilers.
0: Okay, yeah. I no, appreciate that.
3: An explanation for this.
0: Mm. So but um you know this is basically again like I was uh as I was discussing with Tim at work um there's a lot of um, like everybody had to be all in on pretty much like you know no everything established to make this movie work yeah so um I mean, of course, you got. I mean, I guess that's the that's a benefit of having such a, you know great character actors in this movie.
3: Uh, Tom Baker, uh, the most famous of the classical Doctor Who's, uh, put it that one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, that you had to have as an actor to to be to be the Doctor was that you could just rattle off tech techno babble and exposition at a moment's notice and make it sound convincing even if it didn't actually make any logical sense if you looked at it okay so this movie uh, basically requires a whole cast of actors who can do this
0: right yeah I i mean you look at it from a i mean just from the lead standpoint uh peter weller i don't think he's ever really worked as a um leading man in a traditional sense i mean his uh probably his most famous role is actually is the original RoboCop.
3: yeah three years three years later right never really had a lot of traditional leading roles Mm -hmm. okay um although he could i mean he was able to carry carry movies as needed and genre films like uh leviathan and they
0: <laughs> oh yeah so we're still trying to i'm still trying to get uh andrew td um on board he really wants to talk about tombstone which yeah. obviously doesn't qualify but right john Casamatos is i'm sorry george p Casamatos is kind of like the ultimate uh pushover director um,
3: oh what you're saying
0: well i mean you know Cobra. You know he <laughs> pretty much was just complaining about uh, Stallone. The reason why we're behind schedule is you're just taking so much time to screw around with your what your girlfriend. And pretty much everybody uh, claims that uh, Ken uh, Kurt Russell. I would have loved to see a Ken Russell western, but <laughs> Kurt mm-hmm. Russell directed Tombstone. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but Leviathan, for what it is, I I have not seen the, uh, I have not seen the Abyss, and I have not seen Deep Star 6, but, I mean, if you want, um, if you're a fan of Chud, (laughs) um, you definitely get, uh, you definitely get your fill with, um, Leviathan. You got your Ernie Hudson, your Daniel Stern, and, uh, like, whenever you put uh, Meg Foster in some kind of mysterious role, you're usually got gold. So it's a good good way to kill 90 minutes. <laughs> and I think it was the pick they gave on the um, Screen Draft's aquatic horror draft from the 89 movies.
3: Yeah, it would have been. The mm. thing about... To go off on a tangent, the thing about uh the eighty nine underwater movie boom was everyone assumed the abyss was going to be a horror film initially.
2: Oh just, okay.
3: The, just be yeah. Um they talked about this on screen drafts, not screen drafts, but one of the eighties all over bonus episodes. Mm. There's just the assumption going in that given what James Cameron had done before with the the Terminator and especially aliens the aliens, yeah to do an underwater movie was going to be an underwater horror movie so a lot of the abyss mockbusters that were thrown into production went with that assumption that he was just going to do aliens underwater
2: Mm.
3: when that wasn't what the abyss is at all it's a very different kind of story but they couldn't have known that at the time
0: Right, well, I mean, that's just the entire fun of the Mockbusters, especially in the 80s before Made for Video was a legitimate platform.
3: Yeah, Made for Video was starting to take off in the 80s, but it was only the disreputable horror stuff or some kind of stuff for kids. Yes. There's a probably a podcast episode to be talked about, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, you know, something to consider. But I mean, for the most part, though, it was all about rentals in the 80s
3: yeah it was mostly a rental market back then
0: right so i mean with streaming now i mean it's about you know about that time but i would say by the uh mid-90s until streaming uh mm-hmm. mockbusters was a you know all about selling you stuff because um you know like abraham lincoln zombie hunter <laughs> it was, mm-hmm. um but it, it's all about beating to the punch which brings us to probably our everybody's most un- favorite uh dare I say mockbuster studio in a sense, as in um Canon.
3: Canon, I'm not not sure you would say was a mockbuster studio per se.
0: Well, think about missing an action.
3: I mean, that's true. Yeah. Something that would qualify. Right. But- the way the exploitation market always works is that you are trying to grab onto trends as soon as you can
0: right i mean you had two break-in movies in one year
3: right i think the difference between between uh, something like canon and the asylum was that the asylum wouldn't the asylum does try to trick the gullible canon was more was Na- nakedly imitating stuff, but they weren't trying to pretend they were something they weren't. Mm,
0: okay, that that is fair, despite, you know, they uh I think the go on and glowists would go to say cans with a movie poster <laughs> to sell.
3: Yeah, they they sell things on the posters and stuff.
0: And well, then then write the, the script the, afterwards.
3: Uh, when, right back in the days of uh roger corman at american international pictures when he was getting his grounding in the industry it was not uncommon for to come up with the po- the title in a poster first and then you make the movie
0: well and that was
3: standard. so that was standard issue b pictures back in the 50s
0: well okay i can see that i'm just more accustomed i guess to the uh full moon features and um Stuart Gordon experiences like the entire thing about Castle Freak was just a image on the wall, and like, so what is that? It's a castle, and there's a freak. (laughs) So, I mean, I guess that with that that thought, this movie is a Jeffrey Combs Away from Perfection, but I'm granted he didn't do Reanimator till a year after this,
3: yeah. So, but talking about producers and stuff, okay, the story, I it's just going to go by memory here. Okay, okay cool. But the producer of Buckaroo Bonsai of Sherwood Productions, the mm. production we see before the film proper, uh, David Bagelman, um, he produced a a few movies but he pretty much clamped down on the rights to all of them pretty tightly
2: Yeah, which was involved
3: mm. shady business dealings that and this ended up tying up the Buckaroo Bonsai rights for many many years it took I mean I don't think they did the first DVD release of this movie until 2004 because they had to sort the rights issues
0: at least and, we got it for the twentieth.
3: Yeah, but that was also what tied up any plans to do to do the sequel that they had had, had loose idea for in mind.
0: So I do see or, at the end of the or, movie you get the yeah,
3: yeah the promise of Buckaroo Bonsai against the World Crime League, and the movie hadn't done that well in theaters, but everybody was enthusiastic enough about it that they would have done a sequel if asked.
2: Mm, yeah.
3: And, or a television series, which was being floated around in, for a time around the late nineties, but eventually everybody aged out of it.
0: All right. No, I mean, if you're going to come back to it now, it's definitely in that uh, legacy sequel era where I think you have that guy who played uh snake eyes. As who would be the next Buckaroo bonsai? Just because, eh, We don't really want to mess around with the fact that Peter Weller is definitely not half Japanese,
3: right? That's that's another sign. This was an eighties movie that cast yes. a Caucasian guy uh a biracial character, and no well,
0: i would... I've known enough second, third generation Asians who still like to throw the uh, last name associated with them. <laughs> I was in, uh, again, I'm in the wrestling business. So it's like, uh, Brett Wilson, um, good friend, great, great opponent, you know, eh, would go by Brett Gakia, the Asian sensation. <laughs> I, yeah, no, you're definitely two generations removed. So I don't, I, it's basically, I defend Cameron yeah. Crowe for, um. The Emily Stone controversy for what was that Aloha or
3: yeah Aloha yeah <laughs> but um, I mean if
0: you if you watch the South Park episode where Butters comes to terms with his Hawaiian roots it 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 seems forgivable.
3: I don't know the key thing that kept Buckaroo Bonsai from having any kind of continuation despite it finding a measure of cult success. Had a lot to do with uh, the legal wranglings with the producer. No, and,
0: and I can, yeah. No, you should never like. Just from my own personal experience as the uh, copyright owner of Main Event of the Dead, yeah. Um, come up with the idea and then get your friends involved. Don't don't go straight to Congress. <laughs> now
3: we were talking earlier about how this was a movie for nerds. And that was another reason the film kind of struggled in 1984 is because most of the marketing for the film was directly targeted at the the sci-fi convention market and magazines like Starlog. Right. They didn't really try to sell uh, the mass movie-going audience so much.
0: No, no, this would be today, it would be a... Uh... Uh, Mid-sized budget fathom events, and let's see what happens. Project.
3: I don't know if you do something this elaborate for fathom events.
0: Okay, I was being generous. Low, 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 low. So low br- low budget. But I mean, it's a solid enough script. I mean, that's the key to being a good fathom event. Is it's not too. It didn't cost too much to make, but it's got a special audience, and let's just go for that. I mean, I mean, that's how Kevin Smith is still making movies.
3: For what it's worth. But yeah, back bank in the 80s, uh, there were a few movies that seemed to get most of their promotion through the uh, Starlog or Fangori circuit. And yeah. Within, I mean, within two years, there were Buck Rubansai fan club listings in magazines like Starlog because remember the internet was not in wide use at the time
0: right i mean
3: you mainly dealt with uh, specialty interest magazines and snail mail fan clubs back then
0: right i've just gotten this scene so we've gotten to the point where uh, buckaroo has been uh electrically uh charged with the formula to see the um well he's been given the ability
3: to the electrodes from what they actually
0: look well, like. Well, yes, but he's got to pass the formula on to Dr. Right. Oh. and You know, basic, and basically it's a running gag now that uh, you don't necessarily want to shock his, shake his hand, I should say. Right. Which, um, you know, constantly plays a part. And Goldblum again, this is like, like, I, uh, you know, it's almost surprising that Goldblum got the fly because it's like, oh, we know where to plug it, plug this guy in. I mean, it, it was almost an exposition drop in, say, Annie Hall. I mean, I, I think it speaks for the attitudes of the feature at many points. What was it? Uh, What's my motivation?
3: No, it's I forgot my mantra.
0: Oh, OK. <laughs> Which is weird. Has Christopher Walken and Jeff Goldblum been anything else? Or have they actually shared the screen, I should say? Um,
3: The Complete Works podcast covered several movies in which they both appeared, but they never have shared time together on screen. Uh, I mean, this goes back not just to Annie Hall, but The Sentinel in 1977. They both have roles in that.
0: Um, Same year as Annie Hall, but
3: Wait, well, you listened to part of the man of the year episode.
0: Yes. Yeah, I didn't, but I you know. That but was still again, two that was still two thousand six. Like Yeah. You know,
3: and there, they, there's
0: there's hope.
3: But no, and Walken and Goldblum came out of the same uh New York base when it came when they got their acting careers underway. So they actually turned up in uh I think four movies have both actors in them the other is uh really early 1976's next stop greenwich village
0: right I'm, i've heard of uh...
3: yeah which also has bill murray in it which is a whole different set of crossovers
0: yeah very weird because 70 i mean what murray murray didn't go on saturday night live till the 75 76 season correct
3: no 76 77
0: oh, okay you see i i just thought he was immediately filling in for Chevy, right? So. But, um, so so I mean now obviously Buckaroo Banzai in this feature is a national treasure uh, he's basically got his fan club supplying with helicopters to get out of situations
2: and
3: yeah, this, is, this is another throwback to Pulp Fiction uh, characters like Doc Savage have uh, besides the direct sidekicks which in this movie it's the hong kong cavaliers you know they'll have a group like the famous spot um in different fiction they'd have the the hero has some kind of group of sidekicks mm. i mean like it goes like the fabulous five i want to say mm. uh even sherlock holmes uh actually buckaroo bonsai when you get to the blue blazer irregulars which is what you're talking about here um that's uh that's in the tradition of sherlock holmes's baker street irregulars who were the uh, people on the street he, he had contacts with
0: right you... oh no and it goes back to the uh a lot of serials you would see on um Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand in the early days, like
3: um... oh yeah, in the early days, like Commando Cody and the, right, the Republic serials mm-hmm. they tackled back then. So but... there is something we said. The Buckaroo Banzai and the Pulp Fiction tradition did kind of get a mini revival in the mid '80s after Raiders: The Lost Ark did its yeah. own spin on. Where where it's been pointed out that Raiders of the Lost Ark isn't directly in the style of 1930s serials. No, it's
0: not. Right. Project. It
3: has some it has a more modern, thorough pacing. That didn't stop them from being kind of a boom in pulp fantasy and fiction concepts in the mid 80s to try and imitate the success Raiders had.
2: Mm-hmm. There
3: were actually a few movies like this, and it could be easy to confuse the titles. Uh, one that like 1985 had remo williams the adventure that's of- actually
0: why i was pulling up fred War- ward's imdb yes uh, yes
3: that is a direct adaptation of a pulp line
0: right no i used to see a bunch of the audio books at the uh truck stop i used yeah. to work at that's
3: that's a direct adaptation mm. 1986 had more of an indie effort in this vein called jake speed which is Kind of like Buck Bonsai, it's a story about a woman who uh, her sister gets kidnapped while she's traveling in France into a white slavery ring. And the woman doesn't know who to turn to for help, but it turns out that the main character from a popular series of pulp novels that her grandpa reads mm-hmm. is actually a real person. turns out in, in the movie's universe to be a real person who goes on globe-trotting adventures with a sidekick and they make a little extra money by writing books inspired by their adventures on the side. Mm-hmm.
0: So. And, all,
3: and they, and they go on adventure to save the sister.
0: So this all ends with the league of extraordinary gentlemen. Well, I mean, that's, that's um, Alan Moore. So again, <laughs> disconnect the Alan Moore from the cinema and yeah. Gen- extraordinary gentleman uh in well, yeah. a sense
3: well yeah in a sense that kind of brought the pulp at kind of a deconstruction of pulp attitudes mm-hmm. i mean talking about other pulp fiction that was getting adapted uh when canon decided they wanted to knock off raiders of the lost ark they adapted some of the alan quartermain story.
0: right story. yeah i was familiar with that
3: yeah uh, and i've seen those because you know i've seen a chunk of the canon output and the you know, and the thing about the movies like Jake Speed and the Alan Quartermain movies is that they um when you talk about an 80 sensibility, the problem with a lot of the pulp adaptations was they weren't 80s enough in how they treated minority groups or other cultures.
0: Okay, so with that 80s, said
3: of sensitivity Um, but there are some truly alarming portrayals
2: of
3: peoples in the uh canon alan quatermain films and and, which is because a lot of these movies were actually filmed you know on the continent
0: right okay i was about to say well you mean remo williams (laughs) it's pretty racist and didn't that guy get a supporting actor nomination for that movie or at least a golden globe or something?
3: uh yeah in that movie joel gray plays a japanese guy
0: korean but <laughs>
3: yeah and joel gray a famous jewish stage actor <laughs> plays a korean guy mm-hmm. and uh that's and that was one of the higher end attempts to do pulp you don't want to see some of the stuff that turned up in the canon films. oh
0: no but... no no I yeah you either go from canon forward or you don't go back to canon
3: yeah
0: (laughs) 90 for chill the podcast proudly presents to you ali's accessories shop on etsy's trash feature review
1: So can you tell me about the tenants that live across the hall from Ms. Lonega? Well, I've actually never met her. Open up, please. It's NYPD. She never goes out, ever.
2: It's a little strange. Well, this is Columbus Circle, sir. Nothing seems strange around here.
1: Her name is Justine Waters, known as America's little darling. Sole heiress of the Waters fortune, she mysteriously disappeared 17 years ago this month.
2: What's interesting is the girl across the hall, she doesn't have a social security number, nothing. She hasn't left her apartment in
0: years. She looked like a victim. There's only two units on the penthouse level. If I were you, I'd make a move.
2: What do you think? I love it. They rented the apartment. It's just that I don't want things to change.
1: You gotta trust me, girl. They're gonna lead their lives just as Hillary led hers. Not a peep
2: I'm not going anywhere <laughs> do you understand You're at the center of something very dangerous. We have to do it now. This is the one we've been waiting for, Charlie. I don't want to run from the cops. I don't make mistakes. We're one email away from a fortune. 20 million?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Since Buckery Banzai is pretty much an ensemble flick when you really break it down, your Peter Wellers, your Jeff Goldblum's, Ellen Barkins, Clancy Brown, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, Vincent Schiavello, Dan Hedaya, etc., etc., I figure I'd Better go and accompany this with Ali's Accessory Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Review with what looks like an ensemble film from 2012, Columbus Circle, starring Selma Blair, Amy Smart, Jason Lee, Giovanni Ribisi, Bo Bridges, and Sam Levine at one point. Or Levine, I'm sorry. What have you. So, um, tagline is Fear Thy Neighbor. It's a story about Selma Blair as a shut-in in in the Columbus Circle uh, neighborhood of New York City, who... Oh, yeah, so... uh, The neighbor across the hall just died, and she was interested in getting her apartment as well. And as it turns out, it gets rented by Jason Lee and Amy Smart. And lo and behold, they portray an abusive marriage and it's all a scheme to get the shut-ins money and Bo Bridges is involved with this as the caretaker to Selma Blair um so it really kind of works out for a 90 minute movie because you'd expect some cat and mouse in this um oh and I'm sorry Kevin Pollack uh, actually wrote uh, co-wrote the screenplay with George Gallo uh, writer of Midnight Run amongst many other movies and, you know, it's just... I can't say... I say the direction is the weakest point. Uh, maybe Jason Lee is an abusive husband. But, basically, you know, by the 50-minute mark, we pretty much has, have exposed the plan. And it's only an 85-minute movie, so it's like, eh, what kind of cat and mouse can be done? And, fortunately, the script is written well enough that... Hey, they managed to still pull it off and be kind of fun and clever by the end of it. As I say, the direction's worth nothing. Um, Kevin Pollak's good and in it. Um, And Selma Blair's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun, though, if you think of this as the low-budget sequel to Hellboy, since Selma Blair's character in that franchise is hiding from her own dangerous powers. And essentially, wants to say this isn't the same character? Aside from, you know, reality. But it is distributed by Universal Pictures. Same people who did Golden Army. Hellboy 2, the Golden Army. So I don't think it's that far of a stretch.
3: There would be that second wave of trying to do pulp characters in the 90s after Batman hit it big.
0: Right. Which obviously, again, means Tim Burton never read comic books.
3: <laughs> but uh in and, and that pulp run you, you know like the shit that was when we had the adaptations of the shadow and the phantom and yeah so, and they were still running into uh failures to properly adapt the material for modern mores but well, you did not
0: most you did have russell ever, Mul- but... i'm just saying with the shadow you did have russell mulkay Mulca- as the director so that's not a good start
3: <laughs> but um yeah, Buckaroo Bonsai is not the most progressive movie by modern standards, but well, it's I
0: mean, aside from not as
3: bad as it could have been in trying to make pulp work for the eighties.
0: Well, I'm just saying this is definitely not the worst by any stretch. I mean, the the worst bit is the fact that you have again Buckaroo Bonsai being a Caucasian, um, who's supposed to be of a Japanese father again, I've already defended that you can send me a check later, Cameron Crow. So, cause yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I love the race element that we have. You know, essentially the black people are the good guys. And, you know, we should have embraced that damn near 30 years ago now. Then, but, um, gosh, it's one of those move Like, This is definitely a movie where it's like yeah, kind of wish Fox News were around just to screw with them. (laughs) Uh, But I do love the cheap effects right now when they're uh, talking to uh, I don't want to uh, mistake the title of the um, the lead uh, Black Electroid. Mm -hmm. Uh, John Oh shoot, come on. I know they had her name pretty high. Uh John Emdel. Right. So if anything, this movie might be offensive to Jamaicans, but I haven't looked at all the IMDBs. <laughs> but I love the cheap effects on these vision these uh goggles, which basically look like yeah. bubble rat.
3: Mm-hmm. Now, bubble wrap was still relatively new in the 80s. Well. <laughs> bubble wrap was introduced a lot sooner, later than people might think. It was introduced in the mid 70s.
0: Yes. and um, No, I knew it wasn't a 60s product, but.
3: Well, well one thing with uh, bubble wrap was that it was used uh, in creating one of the aliens and one of the early Tom Baker Doctor Who cereals. And it looked a bit creepier back then than it would once it became more commonplace.
0: Well, yes, granted, but I'm just saying, like, well, and that they spray, seems... They
3: spray-painted it to make an alien larvae, basically.
0: Right. I'm just like, well, that seems even expensive for Doctor Who. All things considered. Uh, just going back to a robot chicken when the uh, nerd gets on the TARDIS. <laughs> Oh, no, these are civilization... Oh, yeah, really. What did that cost you? A penny? I'm sorry, a hey penny? <laughs> what did that cost you, sir? Oh, a hey penny. <laughs> There's also a lot of jokes about Snoopy's house being bigger on the inside as well. Yeah, that,
3: that's a running gag that goes back roughly the same time as Doctor Who came along, but Schultz couldn't have known about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, just uh still kind of peripheral. It's like, um, does Helen Ellen like? I can't really think of an Ellen Barkin character who wasn't exceptionally neurotic in a sense.
3: I'm not familiar enough with her work. Yes, yeah. have a opinion on the matter.
0: Right, I'm just saying she's definitely a little out there in Mad Dog time. <laughs> mm-hmm
3: um one thing about uh buck brew bonsai was that it was getting greenlit was basically because the success of star wars and indiana jones suggested that something that you might be able to turn into a series might be worth greenlighting
0: oh yeah i mean uh, ha- drew mcqueenie
3: ha- talked about this and in an 80s all over uh bonus episode
0: mm-hmm. and
3: one of the things that makes 80s sci-fi so interesting especially early on in the decade is that people did seem willing to kind of try any concept or put any spin on the material they could think of for Mm. so they could see if they could cash in on how popular sci-fi star wars was
0: Uh, at least hollywood wasn't dependent on that as it is now
3: No, it wasn't. There was definitely a it's clear not everybody was quite sure where to start. I think that's partially because there had been so many direct Star Wars knockoffs the end of the seventies, especially from foreign productions like Message from Space or Star Crash, yeah, that just doing a straight Star Wars ripoff wouldn't do right i mean i mean disney doing something like the black hole isn't even quite like a star wars knockoff sure it's got a cute robot but well it's Jessica just richie a my cute ro- friend, put it put it best it's basically kids bop 2001 by the end of that movie no
0: that's a fair statement <laughs> but i'm saying a cute robot are we talking just bob or are we talking victor like like but uh, that's the closest thing it had to star wars was two cute robots thank you
3: right but the bigger studios were trying to think outside the box because uh because between star wars and the uh the other big sci-fi fantasy things that broke at the end of the 70s like close encounters the third kind which is uh different kind of space adventure yeah or the dungeons dragons taking off you had a lot of interest, uh, weird ideas being floated around the major studios kind of a well well what can we take just one element of star wars and build a movie around it which is said to be how uh universal pictures greenlit heartbeats Oh. the story goes there was a survey said the thing people liked best about Star Wars was it had cute robots. So the thinking is, well, we make why not make the whole movie about the cute robot characters? Well, where, where will that take you?
0: Should have waited till the animated series failed. <laughs> <laughs> so, or uh, as I look up at, at my Ewok cell.
3: <laughs> uh. You know, Dungeons and Dragons is really popular. So, well, let's what what can we do with the medieval fantasy where we can work in a lot of character types?
0: Yeah, the fun thing though is you still had the adult theme stuff um, because recently the Windy City double feature uh, show did um, a bi-weekly podcast um, did a triple feature Mm -hmm. of. Uh, time bandits time walker and um the sword and the sorcerer uh albert pion
3: yeah albert pion's breakthrough yes which i was reading i have this wonderful book of uh, old sci-fi and fantasy newspaper ads from the 80s and 90s called ad astra and it mentions that Sword and the sorcerer actually did better at the box office than some of the big studio fantasy releases like that year it it was probably Pin's biggest success as a filmmaker, financially speaking. Oh yeah, and no, I, the the rest of his career.
2: It, I love. It came my, out in the
3: spring, and it like it did more business than Tron did.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I love me some uh, Albert Pione, just for about just just for the hell of it type stuff. in um, uh, I like. No, I I think Cyborg is underappreciated. <laughs> I definitely should have made the Canon draft on screen drafts, if not Cyborg, Blugsport, obviously, but can't do Canon without a Van Dam, Van Dam, Bronson, and Norris.
3: Well, you're that's Michael Dudikoff eraser, eraser and you know it.
0: Hey, I just did. I just watched. Um, cyber jack and talked about on the last episode of podcast so
3: okay i didn't know
0: (laughs) oh who's not subscribed and following the feed rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast apps five star reviews preferably talk as honestly as you'd like about the podcast and your reviews i just want those stars so now uh michael dudikoff if you want to talk about him he is an actor he didn't know anything about martial arts until canon said he's uh-huh. the american ninja yeah <laughs> okay uh cyberjack that was a lot of fun because like brian james was like the predecessor to tom hardy because tom hardy never uses the same voice tries to make every performance very different <laughs> and um yeah brian james always seemed to do that I mean, um, if it wasn't for his over-the-top, limey character in uh, Tango and Cash, he'd probably have no screen time in that movie. (laughs) I just recently watched the cinema snob talk about Tango and Cash.
3: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, so. Uh, Now, I did find this, like, going through the IMDb. I did not realize that uh, President Widrock, at least unless I'm looking at the IMDb, was played by the guy best known as the bald Nazi in uh, Raiders, uh, Ronald oh, Lacey. Like
3: a powerful cast going down. I mean, the assistant uh, Yakov. Well, that's an early role for the comic Yakov Smirnov, the yes. Russian comic who was
2: oh
0: one yeah, of
3: the distinct eighties phenomena.
0: Oh yeah, no, it's was... it's definitely an eighties phenomenon because if you're not a comedy fan not many people will know it like because i have a uh at my job we have one of our uh delivery drivers is russian (laughs) yeah you hear some of his stories and then i look at my assistant manager who's probably got a decade on me it's like in soviet russia (laughs) (laughs) so
3: but you know going back to bonsai basically at this point in the 80s everybody's try, trying to reverse engineer Star Wars in a way well not everybody there are filmmakers who are trying to reverse engineer Star Wars by taking what worked in that film and trying to plug it into different plug it into a different script or you have people who are just taking elements of what worked and trying to spin something new out of that
0: Oh which yeah, which is where a
3: lot of the best ideas happened
0: Oh no, it's uh, you're take Star Wars and then try just changing the environment entirely. I mean, Sword and Sandal basically got a lot of inspiration from Star Wars. um well, I'd yeah, s- the the hero's
3: journey archetype,
0: right? That sort of thing. Yeah,
3: yeah, that was one reason Sword and Sandal got a boost in popularity. Was you could tell you're basically telling the same kind of story on Star Wars. But you don't have to go to many as as many expensive locations to do it. I mean, budget was always an issue with is always an issue with knockoff cinema. But if you can find a low cost equivalent, then you know that, that's half your job done.
0: Well, and you could even bring it back to um say uh full moon pictures, uh, which is um shoot i know his name i can't come off at the top of my head
3: charles band
0: yeah charles band a lot of the stuff he does like he's more concerned with buying a property just so he can shoot movies in it
3: yeah yeah so you know well it's like or like what roger corman did with bail beyond the stars was he 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 does this pretty very enjoyable star wars knockoff And they spend a little extra money on doing some decent model work and stuff. And then they recycle that model footage and footage and the James Horner music into a ton of other productions afterward.
0: Galaxy of Terror, the Forbidden World.
3: Yeah. uh, Yeah. Forbidden World, Galaxy of Terror, Space Raiders. They're all built to different, different extents around reusing a lot of the model shots. And the uh, Battle of the Star score popped up in a bunch of other New World movies. Mm-hmm. It, it's very recognizable after a while.
0: <laughs> so, I don't know, I was thinking just because you have the uh you know, and uh, aliens described as humans, I mean, that was a big boom around that time, too, I think, with the aliens, you know, the alien features. Basically you're always looking for a new cane. Uh you know, rest in peace, Ian home. <laughs> well
3: well yeah, the what T V Tropes calls human aliens. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, again, that, that helps on your budget if you don't have to do tons of alien makeup all the time. Oh, Because one thing you do notice in Buckaroo Bonsai was they they the budget for the makeup was relatively limited, which is why the red lectroid masks, most of them aren't exactly expressive.
0: No, no. I'm just now getting to where they're taking the uh, gasp to mm-hmm. Jeff Goldblum again. I mean... Okay, so this movie is basically a must-see for any Jeff Goldblum fan.
3: Yeah, it is kind of one of the key early roles. Yeah, and there, there, there's kind of a direct connection between this and one of the other uh, foundational Goldblum movies. Is that uh, W. D. Richter, the director, had yeah. previously written the Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Oh, day. okay. Yeah, it, this is this is directed by that movie's writer. Oh right. Uh, Rick had an interesting uh career around this time. He also scripted the 1979 Dracula. He was kind of a
0: yeah, the script script wasn't the problem with that, Miffy. Big, I will say that.
3: <laughs> a big yeah, a big figure. Fair, fairly uh popular figure in genre screenwriting at the time. Uh incidentally, the director of Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78, Philip Kaufman had just directed Goldblum in the right stuff before this movie
2: all right yeah
3: and invasion of the body, body snatchers is uh one of the bedrock Goldblum movies because that's the movie where he found his cadence
2: mm.
3: he said this more goldblum has said this more than once and it is obvious when you look at the really early stuff and what came after invasion is that this is where he really found his distinctive fumfering affectation okay for huh. those who don't know what fumfering is, it's what sounds like a stutter. Goldman yeah. talks about this in uh the vi- one of the um, I think wired, a video he did for Wired's YouTube channel, where he explains the the way he speaks is not a stutter, it is an affectation. He he affects. Uh fumfering is it's a Yiddish term. Yeah. And it, you know, it's repeating words and stammering and tripping over it. Which all of us do to some extent naturally, but actors usually work to eliminate this when they're performing.
0: I i.e. the dare I get political, the famous uh you know, oh Joe Biden inspired me to get over my stutter type stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I was just going through uh Goldblum's filmography because I have a question. Um, but I didn't know he was on Crank acres Yes,
3: he did a uh, he did three appearances. Wow! Okay, um, two of them are as a dirty old man college professor. I think I you think saw I one am of those. With that. Yeah, you one. saw yeah. one of those, and that that definitely is kind of dated now.
0: Well, no, I mean, uh, gosh, I don't want to think about my buddy Raúl had uh, the uh, "You Got Mail," I got, I have, I got mail guy tattooed mm-hmm. on his inner arm. Yeah. And the other
3: appearance he did is, is the other appearance Goldblum did was as a suburban dad who calls a place to arrange for a surprise party. I think it's like at a Chuck E. Cheese place. Mm. But then he calls back to say somebody spoiled the, par- the surprise for his kid. And now everything's falling apart at home.
0: <laughs> so i just um recently saw on uh amazon prime they have this uh movie that goldblum was in with uh, cindy Lauper, i believe
3: Vibes, yeah you don't I know just... about vibes how can you I say think you we... know your 80s movies if you don't know about Vibes?
0: i think we brought up vibes in the original jurassic jeff jezebel owes me seven over owes me 7.99 episode uh which i still gotta try recovering since uh Podbean only lets me get 100 episodes, at least with the level I am paying right now. I don't want to pay three times that much. Um, okay,
3: but you are asking about five.
0: 1988. Uh, it wasn't available back when uh, we did the Goldblum pod, I think. Or I'm right. still following the 137 limit. It, the it's time.
3: possible.
0: Yeah.
3: But uh, it is on Blu-ray now. Oh, Okay. Actually, TCM Underground featured it a few times. Mm-hmm. But it was one of, but yes, uh, Vibes was one of Goldblum's first roles after the fly. Right. The fly, and when they were kind of experimenting with.
0: Him as a leading man.
3: Yeah. Which led to kind of that, what well, we came to call the Euro Goldblum period over on the Complete Works
0: podcast. No, we, we brought that up with uh, Shooting Elizabeth, correct?
3: Yeah. 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 We talked about that too uh but vibes that's was... the
0: 799 if you're wondering what that title was about
3: yeah. but uh it, vibes was another mix Well, oh, no no now comes... that I'm
0: seeing the trailer play on my IMD peripheral <laughs> yeah that, you, you got uh, freaking dang it I'm sorry uh columbo in there am I right yeah peter falk yes yeah uh, the movie is about a pair of
3: psychics right uh, I, uh Goldblum it, has the ability to know the history of an object he touches if he focuses. Yes, on
0: it. I did see that piece in the trailer. Like this knife was yeah. used in the murder. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. And Lopper has a a ha, can communicate with a spirit. And has the power to astrally project herself, among other things. Oh, okay. Uh, They get thrown together um, but when Peter Falk's character approaches them, ostensibly to track down a lost son in Ecuador, but it's really to search out an ancient treasure in a lost city.
0: Okay, so So I think we are...
3: The easy way to describe it, and I know others have, is that it's romancing the stone but with ghostbusters elements
2: yes yeah i think down I've... to
3: the finale um it's pretty lightly enjoyable some people are really fond of it all right uh, so... the, the district columbia kind of just threw it away at the time they were going through a lot of financial issues by 1988 so they didn't really give this a push and it kind of had a rough production
0: it makes Flocker, you wonder how they got a Lopper so, and
3: Goldblum didn't really get along and Goldblum was only cast after Dan Aykroyd dropped out so there's was well,
0: already if you're talking about people who can't do leading roles <laughs> look the Blues Brothers a gimmick I hate to say that Ghostbusters wouldn't have worked without Bill Murray and I think Aykroyd but- was smart enough about that one uh, but yeah
3: vibes is another mi- mixing and match thing
0: yeah no it's it definitely... speaks
3: to that that kind of because we talked about how 1984 is a lot of the comedy sci-fi hybrid movies uh, but ghostbusters was the one that took off so for the rest of the decade you see uh, a bunch of variations on that
0: yeah so and um yeah i was just looking at ken quapis is the director
3: and quapis um uh, cool.
0: Big bootay. Big bootay.
3: Well, I think that's pronunciation.
0: I'm just... No, I'm just...
3: But, uh, yeah, this was one of these scripts by uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who had had a big hit with Splash. And
0: okay, it, yeah. A few
3: other genre screenplays in the same vein after. Right.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't seem like, I don't know where you thought Cindy Lauper could lead a movie.
3: She's actually quite charming. It's a shame that it kind of turned her off from acting well
0: that 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 is sad but i'm just saying it's Actually, kind of like i mean
3: this is the she's really doing the kind of thing that madonna was trying to do for the first few years of her career as an actress
0: yeah but madonna still had desperately desperately seeking yeah which, but I uh, mean...
3: no you could you no know, longer really likable in the movie and you wouldn't know that it was a difficult production because they she and goldblum do have a nice chemistry going by the end oh it helps that this is the kind of story where the characters start out as antagonistic
0: okay yeah no don't say no matter how rough a relationship you have Derek, go back to deborah winger and richard gear
3: yeah
0: uh if you're if you're going to be professional about it you can definitely Mm -hmm. develop a chemistry right so again wrestling knowledge too like Mm we we like to say uh Uh, better friends stiffer enemies (laughs) Mm -hmm. so right actually
3: vibes mm -hmm. does remind me though that um, it's really movies like ghostbusters started the dreaded cliche of the modern superhero movie in particular though it pops up in other genre movies too the ending where you have to close a portal
0: yeah um
3: because uh you get this in the the ending of howard the duck hinges on this the ending of vibes basically hinges on this you must stop you must stop some
2: something
0: uh, evil from from coming
2: through yeah
3: Yeah. well it's weird that that basically starts in a bunch of comedy movies but now we play it totally straight
0: uh yeah no that is that is strange um but since uh yeah, when did we start teaching Jeff Goldblum how to handle a gun?
2: I don't know. <laughs> Cuz we're we're
0: at the we're at the assault on uh, Yo-Yo Dine in the yeah. movie. <laughs> it's like ah! <laughs> I mean, they even joke about. I mean, I know the character's not supposed to know I and mean, that the uh character's you know kind of dim. He's just happy to be there in a lot of states. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah
3: oh i was thinking of other movies where you have to close the portal at the end i think that's the ending of my science project is you have to close the portal
0: oh i mean i'm trying to think uh
3: that's the one with dennis hopper oh <laughs> from 85
0: okay well i i look you i have I to didn't... close
3: the portal there's a
0: there's a thing about dennis hopper is like i don't really know anything myself between um Apocalypse now in blue velvet. It's all kind of a blank space for me.
3: Well, but between those he wasn't doing a ton of work
0: then. Yeah, true. I do know that much, but yeah. And I said I mean 86 was really Yeah um was it 86? Um where uh Dennis Hopper was really becoming Dennis Hopper to the modern yeah audience. that's the year
3: he did both blue velvet and
0: hoosiers and uh where was texas chainsaw was that 88
3: no that was 86 texas yeah
0: chainsaw so, was two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah which is really like oh gosh i don't even want to sorry i watch a lot of what culture videos <laughs> um and yeah you get to see all the i know way too much about texas chainsaw without actually seeing the original movie <laughs> And I'm not, you know, it's like, what were you guys thinking? Like, I think Toby Hooper even had a good clue on what he was thinking with Texas Chainsaw 2. Um, And at least uh, Texas Chainsaw 3 has an awesome trailer with uh, the Lady of the Lake throwing the chainsaw to Leatherface. So I do love like they they really go full fascist on the red electroids. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I should say red is obviously this is a communist joke.
3: Yeah, it probably is. You couldn't really not bring that up in the mid eighties. No. That was you know, kind of a late period Cold War thing.
0: Yeah, you couldn't do it in the mid eighties. Like I'll say the best Cold War movie afterwards. I mean, okay, I will say Bridge's spies, but what do you expect when you combine Cohen's Hanks and Spielberg? But uh from a fun movie standpoint, would be uh Atomic Blonde with but um which is more about the Germans the East Germans resisting the idea of yeah, it's all ending. Good soundtrack, Naked their own. I can tell you my part, like judging that I'm relying a lot on Andrew T to carry the podcast now. It's like, yeah, we're going for stoner dudes. <laughs> and now, I just uh, as we're going through the finale, uh, we're building towards the climax. I should say, um. Can't help but appreciate our Secretary of Defense. I can't recall the actor's name. Uh, Matt Clark. Mm-hmm. It's definitely got that uh, vibe of your, um, your kind of your uh, F Troop. <laughs> I mean, he's eventually trying to negotiate getting the. Um, the portal jumping stuff from the little black kid. hmm So. I don't know. And watching this, it's kind of like, man, we really need more love for Vincent Chiavelli. I would agree. I mean,
3: Frank Lucky Charm and Milos Forman's films.
0: Yes. Oh. It
3: was all the way through.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, which release like the last thing I saw was Death to Smoochie yeah
3: that was one of his last films
0: yeah it was just uh... oh that was Danny DeVito so kind of
3: they They work together a lot
0: right I was going to say kind of Milo Foreman in a sense (laughs) because you can definitely tell there's definitely an influence of that on death to movie really a movie that i think was under like just maybe was ahead of its time
3: i don't know i really don't know
0: yeah i saw it i saw it at Westlake. so
3: it was either too late or too early that's for sure
0: right Yeah, or maybe just something we didn't want to acknowledge. (laughs)
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Like, especially when you have the entire um, smoochy blackmail bit. Yeah. I don't hate anyone. You don't hate Nazis? (laughs) Um, So. But, um, yeah, I mean, this... If it wasn't for Buckaroo Banzai, I don't know if Christopher Lloyd was going to be a believable villain. I mean, maybe in a comic sense. I mean, obviously his
3: his first villain role. In fact, he played a straightforward villain in another of the many attempts to do Pulp Fiction in the '80s, which was 1981's Legend of the Lone Ranger. Oh. Plays the. Uh, the key antagonist of the Lone backstory, one Butch Cavendish,
0: okay. and that would
3: place things totally straight.
0: Huh.
3: Oh, I, yeah, I roles earlier than that.
0: I I just need need a creepy grin or a monkey boy joke <laughs> <laughs> to feel comfortable. I mean, Star Trek Three is an all right movie, but it's definitely not. It's not a. It's definitely not an even number Star Trek movie. Despite uh, all the love that uh, Trey and Matt give it, <laughs> mm-hmm. I have had enough of you. But I mean, you can you can complain about you know budget restraints, but it's kind of like in the eighties. You have these bits where like. Oh, what's our climax gonna be? <laughs> I can't really say this. The uh, the jet battle or the spaceship battle was overly uh, and and I say that again just watching the Lost Boys and how it's like oh, and the villain falls for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but um. Let me see. Where are we at? Huh. Okay. So, I don't know. As we talk about Jeff Goldblum being beloved, it's now. I mean, I think Jeff Goldblum is interesting in the sense that I can't think of a direct video thing he's ever done.
3: Jeff Goldblum? Yeah. I'm not sure anything he ever did absolutely went direct to video well, there was some, he did do some direct to cable work at the turn of the 90s
0: well yes but I mean HBO was gold at that time
3: no, no HBO didn't have that big a reputation for original productions back then they were doing them but most mm. of them we know were kind of low rent. Mm. I mean framed is an amusing movie but mm.
0: but um I say that because, uh, you know, Peter Weller, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, Peter Weller direct a video, I'm there. (laughs) Which is kind of like, I don't know, what was he lacking? If he's lacking anything. Because I've seen some, you know, like... I've seen some bad movies with Peter Weller, but they're all... I mean, he is always excellent. I would even say uh, recently did uh, Top of the World, where it's basically um, Die Hard at New York, New York.
2: <laughs>
0: um, like... Which is which is also like it, it's a fun movie to watch just for the character interactions you get. Like where else are you going to get Dennis Hopper versus Peter Peter Coyote or Joey Pants versus Dennis Hopper? And uh, there's not enough great Martin Cove performances out there, so. I don't know. I'm just like... And then another movie I've seen with Peter Weller, part of the Alex Accessory Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Review, was uh, Shadow Hours, where he he does a pretty good job at being a Faustian slash uh, hybrid with, say, um, Tyler Durden, the uh, imaginary friend. So... I don't know, like, I'd probably have to pull up his IMDB, like, I'm just saying, you know, you you brought up that, oh, yeah, well, he had Leviathan and carried that, and then it's like...
3: Well, I think it was just not a warm and cuddly screen presence that people seem to tend to prefer for their A-listers most of the time. He's,
2: you're saying
0: he, he wasn't cute kid. and lovely and lo- lovable and uh, naked lunch.
3: We <laughs> you see that you're going right into that.
0: I don't know. Again, I a, of, a lot of I crazy people.
3: I think you might call it a bit of distance to him.
0: Hmm.
2: Hmm. It's
3: very effective in those kind of settings, but um, you know, it's not that he didn't have the traditional action star build of this period. That oh
0: no wanted. no he was ahead of the time. If anything,
3: yeah. If anything it was kinda might mean, have been a bit ahead of the curve.
0: Right. No, he's no, it's not until Die Hard do we have uh some regular looking guy. Um I will say though, he's an excellent um, Batman in the uh Dark Knight Returns adaptations. Right. But yeah. Oh, and there's another tryhard I have to see. He did a lot of tryhards too, actually, now that after watching the uh, bad movie bible YouTube channel. Like uh Oh yeah, Diplomatic Siege. Yeah, that's one I've been meaning to watch. <laughs> like him and Eric Roberts. <laughs> it's almost I guess. Uh, I guess the big question is, can you see a Jeff Goldblum as a um, hero, I mean, as a lead hero in any of these kind of, not just pulpy, but, you know, cult-like action movies?
3: I don't think he was really an action star. Well, not
0: action, but, I mean, Bill Murray is not an action star. <laughs> That's what I'm getting, I guess, when I say pulp and stuff.
3: But no, um, in a light comedy context he he works just fine, okay. You see times then right. so work or a light caper farce, which is what framed was
0: right, no
3: they just have to work relatively light and again it wasn't really the style of the time so you know you kind. Of, sometimes you only have a window of so long when you can really be more than a character actor
0: okay that's true it's it's, it's just like nobody respects the um character actors i guess unless you're you know a pretty looking character like everybody's just basically saying the best thing about Brad Pitt is he's actually a character actor. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and he, like, he's not a great lead. (laughs) I would say. I mean, Edward Norton is the lead in Fight Club. Um, I mean, you have ultimate ensemble ensembles when he works with Tarantino. So... I guess that's the real trick is trying to get one of these um non film school savants behind you, I suppose
2: mm-hmm.
0: like uh and everybody talks about what the tenth uh, Quentin Tarantino movie will be, and it's like. I don't care what it is, as long as we can get Jeff Goldblum in it. <laughs> so, but yeah, now we're to the anticlimactic ending where eh, one shot and the bad guys are dead. So,
3: I do think it is one of the funnier aspects of the story is that the red lectroids are actually pretty pathetic.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, it's just just They're... really confused oh. me. How did they rule the red? <laughs>
3: enough of a threat that the plot has some stakes, but not enough that the heroes can't steamroll
0: them. (laughs) Right. But, um, of course, you got one of the greatest lines after uh, Buckaroo gets back to Earth from his parachuting. Uh, So the president wants to know uh, are we are the are we fine uh, are we going to are we going to war or and are we supposed to nuke russia uh no on the first oh, no sorry something are we is everything fine and are we going to nuke russia <laughs> yes on the first no on the second which one was which i mean the subtle humor is another charming thing about this movie
3: I mean, that's one problem with a lot. You compare it to something like The Ice Pirates, which is a lot broader in that. Regard.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. No, because plenty, no of, plenty of Unique jokes.
3: <laughs> originally written as a comedy, and it only became one in the late development. So, and you can kind of tell.
0: Yes, you can. So. But let's see. So, no, uh, we just have to bring Ellen Barkin back from the dead, and I'd say that's a movie. <laughs> so, otherwise, um, uh, been any movie recommendations right now? Be it uh, new or old.
3: I can't think of any offhand. Although I'm thinking, if you want then maybe if you'd like some ideas for an, another episode down the line
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh we did the episode once early on about 80s animated features mm-hmm. we could do an a follow up about uh very early 90s animation yeah i
0: would say you'd have to narrow it down because that by that point uh the 90s was again well now you know
3: like uh, let's well, let's do 1990
0: to 93, maybe. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, before the world blows up with The Lion King, of course.
3: Um, well, not just that it blows up with The Lion King, but 1990 I find fascinating because it's basically the uh, cleaning off the shelves.
0: Yes, no, there's definitely that vibe.
3: it's not 1994 is the point when you when everybody's starting to obviously imitate the disney comeback 1990 93 is what everybody was just kind of doing beforehand Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which i think is more interesting
0: yes no i could i could agree with that so but otherwise, you can keep track of the poetic critic on her letterbox. That's the poetic critic, and um, and otherwise, you of course rate and subscribe to this podcast. Five star reviews, preferably. Talk as much crap as you want in the the uh, review box. Uh, I, but keep in mind, I'll reciprocate five star reviews uh otherwise talk trash about the podcast at cat bus russ and i guess you know it's kind of awkward this week thank you very much for the sympathy card again for a little scamble
3: no problem
0: like um i mean he's totally screwed up ava so ava's a kind and loving kitty who will kill anything that annoys her but uh, she's never, she has not left my side since Gimble's gone. So I think she just feels like she's got to fill in his role as being the cute little pup, little, little pet. But, uh, with that said, I hope Sasha Harden is smothering the crap out of that little bugger. I, they are great influences on my life and I hope they are keeping an eye on everybody's whose life they touch. And now I just really caught on to the fact that Peter Weller, like, did we really need to rappel down a 45 degree angle? And I don't know why is perfect. I mean, okay. He's perfect. I was about to say, why is he got his shirt open? And yeah, I I will say, um, the Jewish cowboy experience, (laughs) i'm sorry i just had rick moranis moments because he i think he may have won a grammy for a jewish country album so all right so yep and just imagine the cast walking off <laughs> as we sign off thanks again the poetic critic if you want to be on the podcast send us uh send an email to Bus zero seven at gmail.com that's r-u-s-s-t-h-e-b-u-s-0-7 at gmail.com offer me a movie a theme a director an actor as long as we focus on sub 100 minute material or you have a clever way of getting us to talk about longer movies let me know so thanks again uh the poetic critic and you know look forward to bad mouthing some cartoons <laughs> all or right pra- or um, praising <laughs>
3: i'll talk to you later
0: i will say that the uh spielberg draft did not give enough 5 love out there we going west. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later.
3: Okay. Goodbye.
0: Bye.
2: Can I hear a wahoo?